There are so many different aspects of, of what we look at that are important to patients. And, th and that's what really matters the most. Nailing an extension, for instance, you know, that, that comes from a patient I had in the operating room that had a floating knee when I was a PGY4, you know, kind of hanging out to dry in the middle of the night. Patient was doing kind of bad. We did an integrated nail of the femur, and then, you know, we're going to have to take the patient and move him to a different table, or whatever. I was like, I was sick, he had an open fracture. So I basically did a mini arthrotomy and put the nail in through the knee because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. This podcast is sponsored by Smith & Nephew, the makers of the Evo Small Plating System. The Evo Small Plating System is designed to simplify your plating cases. It is a unified platform that offers advanced implants for simple to complex fractures. The system's 51 plate families offer non-locking, variable angle locking, and monoaxial locking technologies to provide you with a variety of options for small fragment plating. Speak with your Smith & Nephew sales representative for more information about the Evo Small Plating System. Hello, I'm Aaron Naja, your host for today's episode, and welcome to the OTA Podcast channel. This podcast is the next in our series entitled The Icons of Orthopedic Trauma, where we interview some of the physicians who helped build the specialty of orthopedic trauma into what it is today. I am grateful to have today with us on the OTA Podcast session chat with the icons, Dr. Paul Turnetta. Dr. Paul Turnetta is the professor and chairman, as well as the residency program director for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Boston University School of Medicine. He's also the director of orthotrauma for Boston Medical Center. A little biography on Dr. Tornetta. He did his undergraduate degree at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he got his bachelor's in chemistry and mathematics. He did his medical degree from SUNY Health Science Center in Brooklyn, New York, where he stayed on for internship and residency. He then went on to do a fellowship with Dr. Joe Mata at the Hospital of Good Samaritan in Los Angeles. He served on multiple executive committees for a large multi-center trials, such as the Sprint, Faith, Trust, and Flow. He's also the leader of the Orthopedic Trauma Consortium and has served as a leader for the Department of Defense Metric Consortium. He's got over 200 symposium talks, educational programs, both at the national and international level, with over, again, 250-plus PubMed peer-reviewed publications. He was the lead editor for Rockwood and Green Textbook of Fracture Care, and he's been the past president of the OTA. And the most prominent, of course, he was our graduation speaker in 2009. So with that, I'm grateful to have Dr. Paul Tornetta as our guest speaker today for this podcast. So welcome, Dr. Tornetta. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thanks. That's really nice of you guys to include me among the people who have <laughs> been far more important than I have. It's, uh, it's really a privilege to be here with you. And that was the highlight of my career. I mean, being down in Kentucky, I, I can't imagine a, a better day. Yeah, that was a great time for us too. So I'm going to jump right in, Dr. Tornetta. So I got to first ask you, why orthopedics? What drew you to orthopedics? You know, you got this degree in mathematics and science. What was it about orthopedics that kind of got you sort of passionate? Yeah, it was accidental. So, um, you know, when I went to medical school, I was fully intent on being a pediatrician. And early on in medical school, I did this little 
shadowing experience, you know, with the pediatricians. And there was this little four-year-old girl who was paraplegic. And I, I went home and like near cried my eyes out for a day and realized that I really like kids, but only when they're healthy. And the really sick kids just <laughs> depressed the heck out of me. So I, I was clueless. I had no idea what I wanted to do. No one in a family had gone to college, let alone medical school. So I had no real role models for medicine. So I just, you know, rotated through and, and I liked most of what I did. And somehow when I ended up on orthopedics, it just really, it just hit me that this was very interesting. It was just fascinating work and, and the material was interesting. And it was all the things that I liked in terms of, of caring for people that, that really needed it, but that had hope. So I think I, I couldn't do a field where, where hope was, was lost. And I think that's what, that's what mostly drew me to it. Happenstance. Yeah. And so along the next phase, so you've picked orthopedics, you're, you're doing your residency training, and now you're encountered with all these different fields in orthopedics, you know, foot and ankle, spine, trauma. What was it about trauma that drew you to that one? Yeah. So I, I wasn't one of those people who in residency was aggravated all the time, although I think my co-residents might think differently, but I had a great time. I had, a, I had good people to work with and I loved orthopedics. I loved every aspect of it with, of course, the exception of spine, but I don't really count that as orthopedics anyway. So outside of spine, I could have done any of the fields. And as I was going through, I sort of liked every rotation and said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to maybe do a hand surgeon. Oh, maybe I'll be a foot surgeon. Maybe I'll be a tumor surgeon. I really liked everything. And in the end, I was considering applying for hand and I had a, a huge fight with an orthopedic attending who shall remain nameless, but was really not a very honorable person and realized I was never going to get a letter for hand. So I was never going to become a hand surgeon. And as I thought about it, I said, you know, I like operating on every part of the body. There's nothing I really want to restrict myself to. I didn't like the idea of hyper-focused. I really liked variety and, and challenges all around. And I liked dealing with children and adults and older folks. And, you know, trauma became, as I became more senior, really just perfect for me because it didn't limit me in any way. So I was able to do procedures and deal with problems that were interesting physiologically, mechanically, and in all age patients and all areas of the body. So it was, it was sort of the most open field. And that's, that's why I ended up sticking with it. Yeah, I'm glad uh, hand lost out because that was a big advance for the orthopedic trauma community. So that gets me to the next question. You know, you juggle so many different responsibilities, and one of them is definitely research. So, you know, we mentioned over 250 PubMed publications. We mentioned all these research consortiums, multi-center studies. What drew you or brought you to kind of really get interested in research? Yeah, that, that also is happenstance. So my residency was not at that time the most academic place in downstate in Brooklyn. It was survival mode in most of it. And, you know, it's a busy trauma center and we had great people, but it wasn't really a, an academic place. I didn't have a lot of academic mentorship. But what I did have was a lot of questions. It wasn't that I was drawn to, quote, do research. I was really exclusively drawn to solve my patients' problems. And everything that I've done, like if you look at what I've published, every single one of those things started with a question that I didn't feel I had a good answer for, for a patient problem. That's the key to it. You know, if you're going to be involved with research, it's, it's not to do research. It's, it's got to have a focus of its own. It's got to be something that will benefit other people. And it, and it can't be done for personal glory because people who try to do research for personal glory end up burning out, doing crap work 
and it doesn't really end up being very meaningful work because there's not a good question to ask. So you've got to really, to me, it was a focus on, I, I don't know how to take care of this problem. When I look it up, I don't find a solution I'm satisfied with. Or alternately, we would have journal clubs and I'd have all these notes about why I thought the articles were terrible. Like, what, why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they do that? And why is this different than that? So I was one of those why kids when I was growing up. And, and I maintain that I'm probably still one of those why kids at heart. And I think everything that I've done and every bit of research I continue to do centers around a patient-based problem that I'm not happy with the answer. So it's not so much that I wanted to do research. It's more that I wanted to take great care of people and I, and I needed to get some answers to do that. Yeah. Along those same lines, you know, I, I think I've spoken to you about this before, but one of my favorite studies of yours has always been the antiversion study, one of the methods to assess rotation. The reason I'm bringing it up is just, it was just a study we reviewed with the residents the other day. There was a case of a patient, you know, who was obviously malrotated when femoral ion mailing. So I thought this was a good article that we would pull up along with other ones. But along those same lines, of those questions that you've had, has there been one question or one study that, you know, was probably the most meaningful for you? No, I, I, think, I think each one of them has its own merits. You know, there are ones that I learned more from and ones that may have impacted my practice more. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount about trial methodology and how to do large-scale work with the sprint study. That was, you know, that was a lot of fun and a real learning experience for me, which resulted in not very important findings, right? So, you know, if you look at the sprint study, it was a, a monumental effort that ended up really not saying anything particularly important. And probably some of the message is lost from that study because, you know, people just look at it and say, oh, ream nails are better. And it was, it was just a fascinating experience with some really good people, you know, Gord Guy, it's a great guy. And Mo Bandari and I have been friends forever. I mean, I've known Mo since he was a resident. And, you know, we all as a group sort of learned orthopedic large-scale studies from that trial. So to me, that was my most educational trial for myself. But I think there are so many different aspects of, of what we look at that are important to patients. And, th and that's what really matters the most. Nailing an extension, for instance, you know, that, that comes from a patient I had in the operating room that had a floating knee when I was a PGY4, you know, kind of hanging out to dry in the middle of the night. Patient was doing kind of bad. We did an integrated nail of the femur and then, you know, we're going to have to take the patient and move him to a different table, whatever. I was like, I was sick at an open fracture. So I basically did a mini arthrotomy and put the nail in through the knee because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I said, wow, you know, that, that worked way better than I thought. So, you know, that then got taken to the lab where I went and I did a bunch of cadaver studies where I tried to go underneath the patella and found out that, you know, that's pretty tight and, you know, you need to be an extension and you couldn't really get the right portal. So sort of developed some techniques in the lab that we then brought back to patients. And that has had, a, I think, a, a real impact on my practice. I've been able to do things with nails that I couldn't do in the flex position. And I think that's you know, that's the kind of example I would use as to something that has helped me take care of people that was born out of a problem, maybe taken to an independent way of verification, not just trialing it on patients, you know, by working in the lab, and then bringing that back and demonstrating that it can work in, the, in a patient population. You know, it's, that's the kind of stuff that to me is very impactful because it's a tool that not only you can use, but others can use it as well. That's a great story uh, of the super patellar nailing. I did not know that. So I guess, I guess necessity is the mother of the invention, right? Like that's the saying, but th that's a really, really interesting story. I, I did not know that. 
So now we've talked a little bit about research, but you know, let's let's talk about some of the other roles. And I, I think I kind of already have a gestalt to this answer just from having you as our graduation speaker last year. But from the various roles you take on, such as chairman, program director, clinician, scientist, educator, former OTA president, and so forth, has there been one that has been the most rewarding, or do you just find all of it? You know. Yeah, I think that I, I like all of it except for some of the administrative part of being a chair. That's honestly no fun and no one should ever do that. But outside of that, I think you don't get involved with things that you don't like. I mean, by, by nature, I think the thing I like the most is education, which is how I find myself in educational roles often. But I see that that role extending beyond residents or, or other, you know, other members of the orthopedic community that role extends into the clinic, right? So, you know, you, you become a, a really good physician by having good relationships with patients and being able to educate them on options and, and what's going to happen for them and how can it happen. And basically becoming an advocate for the patient to the patient and to everybody else around. So to me, all of what we do is about, is about education. And, and that would be my, probably my greatest love is, is as an educator. In research, I think it's a similar thing. It's based on patient problems. So, you know, if you look at everything that we do, if, if it's not based in patient care, if it's not based in helping patients, then it's, it's an error. Okay. So this next question, I, I got to be honest, this is a little bit of a selfish question that I put in for myself and uh, I still ask it then because I find it very, very interesting. But for the young orthopedic surgeons who are predominantly the listeners of this OTA podcast community, as well as the rest of the OTA community, and I think we kind of get little snippets of advice. We kind of see the theme, but what sort of information advice can you give them to be sort of good clinicians, you know, good researchers, good educators? You know, you mentioned passion, having, being motivated for the right reason, but could you just sort of elaborate a little bit more on this? Yeah, I think that, you know, our job as physicians is, is a patient first attitude. So I think that my words of advice to people are to, to do the things that you love if you do things that you don't love, you're, you're much more likely to fail and you're much more likely to be unhappy doing it, you know? So you need to identify in your career, is it, is it just taking care of patients, which is ultimately what all of us do, you know, in, in one way or another. I mean, I'm someone who runs a busy clinic and I'm active clinically just because I'm a chair. I still do quite a lot of operating and, and take care of a lot of people. And that's always been the basis of my existence is patient care. I think that that as a, as a younger person, you have to figure that out. When I was younger, I, you know, I, I wanted to and strived like all of us do to, to sort of be the best at, at what I do. So I, I read incessantly and I asked people questions, you know, incessantly and I, I wanted to get better and better and better. And, and you know, I think I've achieved a, a fair amount, but, you know, there's still probably people better than me and I, I want to be as good as them. And there's a whole lot of people at an extremely high level in our field. And I don't think there's anybody... Who I was a resident with or I've trained that, that probably couldn't do anything that, that I've done if that was what they were passionate about and wanted to do. But not everybody's going to be an educator. Not everybody's going to want to be in an academic setting. Not everybody wants to answer questions. They want to, you know, maybe get the answers from people who have found them. So I don't think it's important what direction you go, as long as it's a direction that, that is focused on patient care and it's something that you love. So if you're great with patients, you know, and you want to make a name for yourself, you know, you'd be a great clinician. You'll get a local reputation, a national reputation. And I think that the younger folks, as they grow into their careers, 
we'll be surprised once or twice or maybe more than that around things that sort of just happen because they're on a path that leads them to a place they need to be. And I'm not a fatalist or anything like that, but you know, if you look at anything that I've done, it's been through some opportunity that someone has given me. You know, nobody does things on their own. And most of those opportunities were born out of something that I had already done myself. So, you know, I did X, someone recognized that and said, hey, he did X, maybe we should have him do Y. And, and I think that, you know, these opportunities fall into people in, very, in a myriad of ways. It can be a research opportunity, a teaching opportunity, a patient care opportunity, a business opportunity, a development contract. There's lots of ways to contribute to your patients outside of just patient care, which is the primary thing. And those things will come I would advise people to stay away from having specific goals that that they want to reach that are not altruistic. So like, I want to be a chairman. That's not a great goal, right? I want to be in a position to mentor and help people succeed. That's a great goal. And you can do that as a chairman. If being a chairman is a means to that end, that's a worthwhile endeavor. Like that's what I enjoy about being a chair is being able to support my faculty. But it's not being a chair because I want to be a chair, right? It's not doing a multi-center trial because I want to present at the front of a meeting. It's doing a multi-center trial because there's a really interesting problem that I don't know the answer to and I can't answer it by myself and we can answer it in a group. So I think be open to opportunities, do the things that you love that direct you back to patient care. And be highly collaborative and open to others. You know, orthopedics more than any other area, and you asked what drew me to it. The other thing that drew me to it was orthopedics is a team sport. Without question, orthopedics and orthopedic trauma in particular is much more of a team sport than maybe anything except for oncology. And, you know, oncology has, you know, very little hope, so I I couldn't have done that. (laughs) But the idea that you're not a solo person struggling to just get everything done yourself, the idea that there are a whole bunch of really great people that you can grow and, and work with and learn from and teach and interact with and have a long-term relationship with. That team sport environment, that's what orthopedics and orthopedic trauma are really all about. And for the younger members, that's what you want. You'll come to the fellows course and you meet eight other people, you know, and then you'll meet them again at a different meeting and you develop relationships. And those relationships will last you a career and probably be some of the most rewarding things in your career. So I think be open to opportunity, do the things that you love, and always be centered back on patient care, patient outcomes, patient benefit, and not on yourself. That, that was some really good wisdom. Uh, that, whatever, how long that was, that was, that was just perhaps the whole worthwhile value of the uh, podcast. That, that was phenomenal. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as a gain wisdom and, and I learned from you and, and, and I'm sure the OTA podcast community will do the same. I, I would like to ask you who back when you were younger, who were the mentors that were important for you and what sort of roles did they play? You, you talk about opportunity. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, that's a hard question because really I, I see, I see the world as a very collaborative place in its ideal setting. And, and that's, that is sort of the way that I've, I've always been as a resident and as a fellow and as an early practitioner is that I always look to be involved with other people who are really good at what they do. And, and, and I did. I had a lot of mentors. So, and, and I will end up leaving people out who had major influences because there's too many to talk about in a session like this. But I, I mean, I would start with, you know, maybe some of the people who gave me 
perspective that I was too immature to understand until I saw it in someone else. So, you know, even, even as growing up as a kid, I was, I was a Y kid, like I said, and, and, you know, you know me a little bit and I'm, I'm sort of cynical and all of that. But, you know, my first real mentor was my mom because my mom was one of those unique individuals who somehow saw the best in everybody. Like I tell you a story about it, that she was in the hospital, you know, near, near the end of her life. And she was roommates with a girl who was a drug addict, right? It was, she was there for, I don't know, cellulitis, abscess, whatever. It's the same patient we see a hundred times a day. And I went in to visit my mom and, you know, and she had a roommate, which she didn't have the day before. I said, what, what's her story? She, she whispered to me, she said, oh, it's so sad. She's, she's addicted to drugs but I really think she's going to kick it this time. Like it was, you know, there was no way this girl was going to get out of the hospital without using tomorrow. Right. But my mom somehow just truly believed that this girl could get through it. And that, you know, that perspective is something that is, is underneath my cynicism. And I, and I'm always looking for that positive in, in any relationship. And, and that gave me a lot. They gave me a lot of, of what makes me a good collaborator, I think is trying to understand other people's perspectives and look for everybody to succeed, you know, not just yourself. And, and then, you know, within orthopedics, I had a ton of mentors going back to residency, Stan Gordon, who's my chairman, was a really, really interesting guy and a big personality and, you know, not a big academic guy, but he always focused everything he did on the patient. Like, you know, if you screwed up, it wasn't you screwed up, you're dumb, or you screwed up, you should have done this. It was you screwed up, what's going to happen to that patient? right? And he was the first one, you know, in my career, because your first exposure to medical school as medical student to a field is really the residents, right? And the residents aren't necessarily thinking so much about the patient. They're worried about what do I have to do to get this done? And it's a task-oriented environment, an educational environment. But somehow, I feel like if it's not stressed, the patient is a little bit lost in that environment. And, you know, Stan Gordon really in the way that he dealt with things, pointed that out to me. And, you know, not directly, he didn't say, Paul, it's about the patient, but his actions spoke that. Everything he did was to try to help a patient. And, and I took that from him. And then Stefan Kottmeyer, who you may know, so Stefan and I overlapped. He was a PGY-5 when I was a two, so we didn't overlap for long. But he was the person who taught me real camaraderie, teamsmanship, and taught me to strive to be well-read and intelligent. He's just like, he was the standard for a resident. And, and he's a standard as a faculty guy now. You know, he's the OTA annual meeting chair now. And, you know, we've been friends for 30 some odd years and I consider him a close friend, but he was really a big influence, even though he was only a little bit older than me. And then early in my career, I was a, in, in residency, I was like a PGY4. And I went to the OTA meeting. I was there to present, you know, some of the sort of work that I had done with someone from a distant hospital because we didn't have a lot of work done. And of course, I was poor. And in my hospital at that time, if you wanted to go to a meeting, it took vacation time and paid yourself, right? So that took vacation time and I paid myself. And I was trying to, you know, get any bits of education I could. And I remember standing outside this lab, like just trying to soak up anything I could from the door. And, you know, this guy with a bit of a Southern accent who sounded like a really nice guy was sort of talking about humeral nailing. And all of a sudden, I hear the voice getting a little bit closer to the door. And he walks out and stares at me. And he said, what, what are you doing out here? And I like was about to run, right? Like I got caught getting free education or something. So, you know, I, I put my running shoes on. I like got into my sprint position. And he said, well, why don't you come on in here with us? I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't pay for the lab. And he said, oh, come on, come on in, come on. It was Tony Russell. And that was Tony's attitude. Like Tony, Tony taught me inclusiveness and educational goals. And, you know, even from that stage, that just made a huge impact on me. Like this guy who's a huge name player, 
who's a wonderful person and a great teacher, took his time to like come and get me as this lowly nobody resident to bring me in and, and teach me something. It was just fantastic. You know, it's just a fantastic thing. And then, you know, I mean, that relationship lasted for 30 years. I ended up designing implants with him. I mean, it's just, you know, these are the, the circles that we have in orthopedics. And then when I went to fellowship, I learned how to reach out and help people from Andy Burgess. You know, I, I interviewed at Shock Trauma and I, I didn't get that job. And, you know, that was not in the competitive days now. There were like probably 10 of us or something. And, and you know, I wasn't one of the top nine, I think. I, was, I had a pretty good record as a resident, but great in training scores, my own brief, but we didn't have any connections. And I know I didn't get the spot, but I was, I was fairly well liked. And, and then I went out and I interviewed for this, you know, fellowship with Joel Matta. And I walked in and the secretary said, oh, you're the kid from Baltimore. I was like, no, I'm from Brooklyn. And I couldn't figure out for like two years why anyone would thought I was from Baltimore. It turned out that Andy Burgess, without me knowing about it and not looking for credit for himself, had called out to Joel and say, hey, we, we should have taken this guy. He's a really good guy. And, you know, he didn't do that for, for glory or for himself. He did that because he's a good person. And, and you know, that, that's taught me a lot and demonstrated, again, you know, by action, not by word, of what you have to do for other people and how other people become really important. And, and you know, that fellowship trained me a little bit too. You know, I worked with Joel for about six months. It wasn't a trauma fellowship. It was just pelvic and acetabular fellowship. But really what I learned was how important technical excellence is. So it's, it's good to have good motivation and to have desires to do well for your patients. But in the end, you have to have the knowledge, but you also have to have technical excellence. And, and Joel really taught me that. He's a, he's a master surgeon, and I try to mimic a lot of the things that he does when I still work around the pelvis. Now, when I went into practice, you know, I, I just, and I'm giving you a lot of people because- No, this is great. This and is, the reason I'm doing it is not, is not to name names of, of famous people. They all are more important than I am and great people. But just to show you the way that, that small things that people can do can really influence a career and to highlight for the younger people, people who have, quote, succeeded, people you look up to, they're like regular people who want to help too. And, you know, like I, I try to mimic that. I try to bring all of the things that these great people taught me and try to try to pass that on. I mean, that's a real effort for me. I really want to do that. And I remember my first OTA meeting when I moved to New York and started my practice, right? I knew nobody. I'm kind of a quiet guy, as, as you know. I mean, I'm not quite on the podium and I'm certainly opinionated, but you know, as a human being, I'm an introvert. Like, you know, this lockdown has been the greatest thing ever. Like I didn't talk to anybody, you know, it's, it's fantastic. So I'm not a social person. I went to this like OTA dinner, my first one. I walk in, I, you know, I, I didn't do a fellowship in a name brand place. So I wasn't like a Harborview guy or a Tampa guy. I didn't have a network. And I walked in and I remember Fred Behrens, who was just a really wonderful guy, walked up to me at the door and said, hey, Paul Tornetta, how are you? I was, I was shocked. Like, how did this guy know who I am? And he goes, why don't you come over here and sit with us? And I went over and it was him and Dave Helfit and a few other people. And, you know, at that time, Fred had just moved to New Jersey and Dave had just moved to New York and I was moving to Brooklyn to work. And they said, hey, you know, we're neighbors, like, you know, we should get together. And it was like the most welcoming feeling like, hey, wow, these are really great people. And, and I became good friends with Fred and with Dave Helfit and, you know, they were supportive if I needed anything. And that idea of welcoming and camaraderie, again, again, was focused for me. And then I think probably the, you know, the biggest influence within the field for me was really the person who probably gave me the most opportunity and showed me the most faith, and that's Roy Sanders. Roy and I have a, a long history together. He actually gave me part two of my boards. 
it was a horrifying, horrifying event. At that time, you know, you went in and, you know, people didn't have digital anything. So you had your folders and everything else. But being a little bit OCD, I was taking a lot of actual picture pictures, like on slides of all my cases. And I walked in and, you know, I had a, a little handy, like handheld slide viewer that, you know, is like the size of a tape recorder and you put a slide in, you push a button, the light goes on. And I put this stuff down and I'm, I'm already, you know, sweating because I've got, you know, Roy Sanders going to have a calcaneus in my thing and <laughs> I had Adam Miller and I had a freaking scapula in my thing. And I was like, not happy. And I walked in and, you know, I had met Roy once or twice before briefly and he said, what's that? Is that a tape recorder? And I was like, no, 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 it's a slide viewer. So like I pulled a slide out at random and I, I stuck it in and I said, see, and I showed it to him. And of course it's like the poster facet reduction of a calcaneus, you know, oh, and he's like, well, why don't we start with this? You know, it's just what a, <laughs> what an experience, you know? And then a little while after that, he said, maybe at the OTA later that year, he said, Hey, you know, if you ever want to come down to Tampa, we could probably find you a job. So I figured I'd pass my boards. You know, but he really gave me a, a lot of opportunity because, you know, he saw me on the podium. He saw me working hard in a sort of a downtrodden place. And he was the first person to put me on a committee. And he was the first person to give me a chapter to write in like an academy book. And it was, it was someone who was that successful, that bright, and that good at what he does, showing me some faith, which, you know, then drove me to the next level. So then, you know, I wanted to be Roy. And, you know, I don't know if I'm quite Roy yet, but I'm working on it. But he's had a huge influence just in terms of giving people opportunity and really learning how to do that well and how to find the great in others. And, and that's really what he's great at. And then John Callahan, you know, John Callahan, who's a, a joint guy. I met John through the Academy. And I think that, you know, we under, underplay a little bit the interaction between specialties, but I've, I've learned quite a lot from people who are in other fields. And John would be my best example of that. You know, I ran into him when I was interviewing for the ABC fellowship. We just got along and then I did some work on a committee for him and he really liked it. And, you know, when he was president of the Academy, he actually appointed me as his ICL chair. And, you know, this is a guy I had never trained with. I didn't do a fellowship with him. And he did it because, you know, he honestly thought like I would do a good job and wanted to give me the opportunity to prove it. And, you know, he and I together sort of revamped that process. And he's been just a, a stalwart guy in terms of how to run a meeting, how to be a politician, how to be an organizer. I was on the board, actually, the academy when he was on the board and, you know, learning how to run a meeting and how to be successful in the political environment. And everything I do, I, I pattern after how John did it. And then I got, you know, yet another opportunity with Tom Einhorn in Boston when he recruited me. And, you know, he was a person who, who understood that you didn't have to do something for someone if they wanted to do it. You just had to give them the tools. And he was a really good mentor in how not to step on someone's toes and how not to do too much. Like he knew exactly when I would need help with something and give it to me, but he didn't push that on me. And, and that was a, a good lesson. And then, you know, finally, and I know I'm, I'm going on and on, but no, no, this is, this is these, great. these lessons that I learned from each, each of these people were, were slightly different and really shaped how I try to do things and how I view it. And then all the way along the way, I've picked up these incredibly close friends. And what I would say is that, you know, we mentor each other, right? Now, about half of them are a little older than me because I, I got to know them when I was a fellow. But, you know, just the group of like, like Dave Templeman, Jim Napola, Bob Ostrom, Tracy Watson, these guys, we, we all kind of grew up together, working together, doing good work together and, and pushed each other. But it was 
always collaborative. It was, well, why are you doing that this way? Well, what if we do it that way? And, you know, there's, I can name 50 other people that I grew together with, you know, and then more recently, you know, others joined that in, in terms of development and other things like Bill Ritchie and Cliff Jones and Dan Horowitz, who we run courses together. And, you know, those, those interactions are probably among the most valuable that I've, that I've had because you learn not just how to be mentored, but how to mentor, how to dual mentor and how to work as a group, you know, and how to grow and mature together in your thought processes. So I think, I think all of those people have contributed so much to my career. And there's hundreds, literally hundreds of other people who I've taken things from. But I would say those are sort of the, in trying to distill it down to what are the important lessons and where I personally happen to have gotten them from. I think those are sort of the, the lessons that you need to learn as you grow through this. Yeah, no, that was, that was great. That was exceptional. Uh, you know, when you mentioned these great individuals, you know, I, I think a lot of people can imagine some parallelism between their career and these individuals. It's funny when, when you're telling the story about Dr. Sanders, Dr. Sanders was also a test examiner, but fortunately I didn't have him during my ABOS. But, but now I'm reminiscing to the fact when you guys were both on the stage debating the sinus tarsi versus extensile approach, <laughs> that him being your test examiner didn't, you know, didn't hold you back there. So that was really interesting. He's done a lot for me. And he, he also is a person who gave me opportunity in development, you know, the real opportunity in development. And he's someone who I think takes great pride in being a good mentor. And he really, he really is that for a lot of people. I mean, that's his, you know, that's going to be Roy's legacy is the ability to, to have an influence through others more than anything else. So, you know, now that I've gotten you to sort of tell us a little bit about your past and stuff, I kind of want you to get your crystal ball out and kind of give us your sort of vision. You know, what sort of advances and challenges do you see the orthopedic trauma community encountering in the near future? Well, I think the challenges is the easiest one, right? So the challenges to me, and I'm probably particularly biased about this, is that, you know, as you know, because we've, we've talked plenty about sort of practice patterns and philosophy is that I am likely the least aggressive trauma surgeon in the country. I think I'm technically good at what I do. I think that I can take good care of people in the operating room. I, my results are good. I'm happy with how I do. But if there's a way a patient cannot be in the operating room do just as well, that's, that's a lowered risk for that person. So I think that our biggest challenge right now is the pressure of finance against the interest of the patient. I view this as a really a critical time for orthopedic trauma surgeons to get back to the basics of making the patient first. And that, you know, I hear all too often, well, you know, we had a fellows course, you know, every year and one of the courses, someone wanted to fix something that I, I definitely would have treated non-operatively. Right. And so well, what, why? And he said, well, cause that's what we do. We fix things. That concept and that, that stuff is being taught in fellowships. And I, and I can tell you that I'm flatly offended by it. It's not just a different way of looking at something. It's the incorrect, wrong way of looking at something. And not that you shouldn't fix that thing, but in that particular situation, it's a patient decision. So I think that, that the challenge, the big challenge we have in training new surgeons is the fact that we're training too many. And that is creating a market force where to make a living, you have to produce RVUs, and to do RVUs, you have to be in the operating room, and people are operating on things that clearly do not need surgery. And that one step over the line of putting yourself and your needs ahead of the patient is an obscene step that we can't take. 
that's our biggest challenge. Our biggest challenge is to stay focused on what's best for the patient. As long as you do that, you'll, you'll never take a wrong step. You will never do something wrong if all you're thinking about is what's best for the person right in front of me. And you know, I say this all the time to my residents in the morning, if this was the person you love most in the world, is this really the way you'd want them treated? Is this, what would you do for them? And I think if you always think of everyone on the opposite side of the examining table and on the opposite side of the OR table from you and think what's best for them and let's make sure we get to that point where we focus only on what their goals are and their needs are and our job is to coach them and get them to the point where they can understand and make a good decision, again, back to being a good educator. If we do that, then I think that we're going to be a field that, that survives anything. But I really believe that we're at risk to tilt over to the wrong side of that right now. So that's, that's my sort of doom and gloom fear. <laughs> I think, you know, what are the good things? The good things are that, as I said, we're a more collaborative field than any other that I know. And, and I've worked with a ton of multi-center groups, and those groups are getting bigger and they're getting better funded. And if you look at, you know, the stuff that we've done through the Canadian groups and through Hamilton and through Elle McKenzie when, when she was with us at Metric, there are countless people who are really putting a lot of effort into being collaborative and maybe putting themselves not first. And that, again, comes back to doing the right thing of putting the patient first. So I think, I think our future is in larger scale studies for those things that require it, for understanding evidence, for those things that don't require large-scale trials, because not everything does, and for appreciating the need for patient-based cognitive and technical excellence. And I, and I think we have, we have the right people to do it. We just have to make sure we head in that direction. Yeah. Again, just great information, great thoughts. You know, the large-scale studies, definitely, I do feel that that's sort of ramped up in, you know, in the what short period of time I've been in orthopedics, just having these larger studies with, you know, in the past, it used to be sample size of 20 or 50, but just having the ability to do a much larger scale study. That's definitely, hopefully that's the the continued future. I feel like uh, we've really gotten all this great information and great knowledge from you. I, I got to end this on a, on a sort of a different tone, you know, like, so we've heard about, you know, all your multiple roles. So I've got to ask you, when you're not busy running a department or conducting these uh, large-scale research studies and overseeing orthopedics and even doing some of the administrative stuff that you're, you find sometimes challenging, what do you enjoy doing? What is something in your spare time? What do you do? I have a lot of hobbies, but I mean, the thing, the thing that sticks out most now is probably photography. So I'm, you know, I've been taking pictures since, since I had a dark room in college. So I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. And, you know, my whole house is filled with stuff that I've taken and I, I make a calendar every year and give it to my staff. And so I, I really love that. That's a, that's a passion of mine and, and exercise, you know, those are sort of the two things right now. And, you know, I'm going to pick up a lot more when I eventually retire, but for right now you can fit, you can fit taking a picture into a split second. So that works out pretty well. And since I'm up before the sun every day, I do a lot of sunrise pictures down at the shore and that's, get a lot of pleasure out of that. So is this a professional camera and the whole, whole deal? Well, it's, you know, it's, um, I just use a, I, I just use a Canon, you know, a, not even, I just use a D6. I don't even want to buy the Mark, Mark <laughs> camera. They're too expensive for me. I don't want to throw money at you. Don't need to take great pictures. You don't need a lot of money. You, you need, you need a lot of attention to detail. Oh, that, that's great. Just in the right eye. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tornetta for agreeing to do this. I, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this. I think there was 
phenomenal amount of wisdom that was provided. So I, I really do appreciate it. I know there's definitely a lot of things I picked up on this. So thanks again. Just like thanks for coming down to Kentucky. Thanks for kind of agreeing to do this. We really appreciate it. I feel really honored to be even to honestly to even be asked. And it's really nice of you guys to have me. And I think it's a really nice bunch of sessions you're putting together. You're doing it. See, you found something you're passionate about already, right? It's really good. It's really good. Thank you again for listening to this episode in the Icons of Orthopedic Trauma series from the OTA podcast channel. Subscribe and join us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at ota.org.